CTBK is more than just a full-service accounting firm. They are one team with an innovative approach to accounting and rise to each new challenge with collaborative problem-solving skills. CTBK goes above and beyond by lending helping hands in the Buffalo and Niagara communities through volunteer work and donations and has partnered up with Victory Sports for 2022 to help keep kids in the community active. The professionals at CTBK are determined to help individuals and businesses succeed. Whether a large corporation, a small business, or somewhere in between, call CTBK at 716-630-2400 and see what CTBK's one-team approach can do for you. Welcome to another edition of Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants. I'm Tim Graham of The Athletic, here with my co-host Jonah Bronstein of the New Bronstein Times. And uh, we have, uh, boy, a uh, lot to talk about. Uh, Ryan Miller night. Uh, just last night, uh, Jonah was there. Uh, I was unable to attend. I was uh, on deadline finishing a story on Dominic Hashik. So I was unable to attend Ryan Miller night, which is kind of strange. Uh, but uh, the Bills, they're going to host the Bengals 3 p.m. Sunday in Highmark Stadium, second round of the playoffs. And uh, I want to start there, Jonah, uh, because the location of the game has been newsworthy and the location of uh, other games in the playoffs also after DeMar Hamlin's cardiac arrest canceled that game in week 17. Uh, there were rules on the books uh, that said that you go to win percentages in the event that not every team can play uh, the maximum number of games or the same number of games into de uh, deciding tiebreakers. And the NFL owners voted on it and came away with a system that apparently pleases no one, uh, which is classic uh, NFL decision-making. Um, I haven't asked you about it, really. Uh, we haven't really talked about the um, the format that was concocted uh, to make up for the fact that the Bengals and the Bills played only 16 games and everybody else played 17. What are your thoughts on uh, what the NFL postseason schedule makers came up with having Bengals at Bills and then – uh, a neutral site game in the event that the Bills and Chiefs were to meet in the AFC Championship? Well, as you alluded to, there, there really was no per perfect solution. No matter how it shook out, there would have been at least one of these three teams that felt aggrieved and their fan bases that uh, they didn't get the opportunity to play their way into home field advantage or a certain number of home games in the playoffs. If it were completely up to me, I probably would have came up with this sort of solution, if not maybe just going by winning percentage and having the seeds and, and having that championship game in Kansas City. But I don't really hate the idea of a neutral site game because I don't that doesn't really favor either team. It is a neutral site. It's almost similar to the college football playoffs where every team plays in a bowl game in a neutral field. On the other hand, the Bills are it turns out fortunate in this regard, uh, not fortunate that what happened to DeMar Hamlin and the emotional trauma that the players and the organization had to go through. But in the football sense, they could have very well lost that game to the Bengals and been the third seed and had to go play this game on the road. Now, without winning that game, and in fact, they were losing that game at the time, they get treated as if they won the game and do have the home field advantage and get a home game, which is good for the Bills and their competitive aspect, but also good for Western New York and the uh, the frenzy and the fervor that comes with home playoff games that have become more frequent in the last few years, but were very infrequent for several decades, and it creates a fun atmosphere in town. So from my Buffalo, Western New York perspective, it's kind of cool that the Bills are hosting this playoff game. But yeah, competitively, I, I do think the Bengals have a gripe, the Bengals and their fans, about not having the opportunity to earn this home game. And the Bengals could have even possibly earned the number one seed and home field advantage and that uh, suspended and ultimately canceled game prevented that from happening. But at the same time, you know, you just go and win the game, win, win on the road, win on the neutral field. I, I feel like the best team is going to win the AFC and go to the Super Bowl, regardless of the location of the games. Yeah, I guess um, you know, my big takeaway is that all fans are insufferable. Uh, and it's been that way for the last couple of weeks. Bills fans are whining about uh, that they deserve this, uh, and Bengals fans should STFU. 
And, oh, by the way, I'm tired of people talking about Patrick Mahomes. Our Josh is better. I mean, it's just been this cauldron of uh, sniping back and forth uh, of all these fan bases. But uh, a big part of this, the stew that's within this cauldron is, uh, is this complaining over who's getting jobbed uh, on the, on the playoff loca- uh, locations. And um yeah, maybe I don't want to spend too much time on it, but I did want to state for the record because it has been such a, a topic and I hadn't spoken to you about it. I just wanted to get your thoughts. My take on it is that the NFL uh, should have acted consistently throughout the playoffs in terms of win percentages and all the different permutations that could come out. I see it as the Bills, and this is rare uh, for Bills fans to experience getting two breaks. Uh, you get a break by having the Bengals here in which the NFL is going to enforce the win percentage uh, aspect of the rules, but then they're not going to enforce the win percentage aspect against the chiefs. Uh, and part of that has to do with, I'm guessing that the NFL decision makers saying that the bills beat the chiefs during the regular season. So there was a head to head aspect to it there. Meanwhile, the Bengals are wondering, well, we didn't get our chance to have our head to head. Uh, we beat the chiefs also. And uh, we didn't get our chance to play the Bills, even though it wasn't our fault. Um, We did everything right. We were gracious hosts. We bent over backwards to make sure that DeMar Hamlin and the Bills were taken care of and had their space. Uh, And we walk away uh, with the disadvantage. And I will say this. We're having this discussion, by the way, and it must be noted, because DeMar Hamlin's okay. I think that if DeMar Hamlin is still in the hospital fighting for his life, or if there's a situation where we're not sure how he's going to be, then I think that uh, I'm still in that same frame of mind that I was in a couple of weeks ago where football doesn't even matter and play the games, don't play the games. I don't care uh, because I just wouldn't be in the mood to talk football, but he's out of the hospital. He's okay. He has been at the Bills facility. We see him smiling and having fun with his teammates. And I, I do, uh, know that John Warrow, the Associated Press, uh, did write a story today that talked about the long road that's still ahead for DeMar Hamlin. So it's not as though he's you know going to be golfing um, anytime soon or, or uh, you know, running obstacle courses or signing up for triathlons. But um, the fact that he is out and seemingly going to be okay and healthy and has been an inspiration and helped raise a lot of money and the NFLPA is honoring him as one of their finalists for their Alan Page Award, which is a prestigious honor that they give out every year for community service. We can have this discussion about football, and I think it does need to be said on occasion uh, that, yes, the Bills were down 7-3, to and in the playoffs, that doesn't mean anything. The Jacksonville Jaguars showed us that last week against the L.A. Chargers. But the Bengals, one of the most dangerous offenses in the NFL – the best receiving trio in the NFL with their injured tight end freshly back would have had to, uh, or would have gone up against a bill secondary had this game continued missing two starters out of their defensive backfield. Teron Johnson, who remained in the concussion protocol after the game uh, would not have been able to return uh, if he was still limited with concussion issues after the game, he wouldn't have come back during the game. And DeMar Hamlin was obviously no longer available to play. So since then, the Bengals have suffered a couple injuries on their offensive line. uh, And the Bills are probably, certainly, uh, not probably, certainly going to uh, enjoy that matchup much more uh, than they would have uh, if everybody were healthy as as they were entering uh, Week 17. So there are kinds of asterisks on this. And again, I think that every every fan base has a case to make, uh, but the whining of who deserves it gets a bit tiresome. Um, I, I guess my bottom line is, again, I'll reiterate, I wish the NFL had just been consistent in how it decided the playoff matchups as opposed to trying to put the round peg in the square hole for every possible matchup that involved the Bengals uh, bills and chiefs. So yeah, there. And right. And I would agree. I think that, and as you, as you mentioned, there were rules in place and policies 
to handle these type of situations, especially a couple of years ago with the pandemic when they anticipated the possibility of games being canceled and not rescheduled, and they knew how that would be handled. And this is a different set of circumstances, but it could have been applied in much the same way. But when it comes down to it, you know, these teams are in the playoffs. The Bengals won the AFC Championship game in Kansas City last year. Home field advantage is no guarantee in the playoffs. And you just got to play the hand you're dealt. If you have a bit of an advantage from playing at home, you know, maybe a team like the Bengals gains some sort of advantage from feeling like, uh, you know, the obstacles in their way and they've been aggrieved and that could be some sort of galvanizing and motivating factor. I'm more interested in kind of who has the mental and emotional edge in this matchup. You would, you would probably assume it's the Bills because of what they've been through over the last couple of weeks, but we've talked in this podcast and many people have meant that, that, that perhaps there's an emotional letdown coming for that team. Maybe the Bengals feel like, you know, they did a nice thing for the Bills in agreeing to suspend and not play that game, and they kind of want to come back out and uh, take back what maybe them and their fans felt like they deserved by winning that game. It'll be interesting to see how this game plays out. It probably is just going to come down to who executes and plays better. But I think there's going to be an emotional edge factor, maybe just from the narrative standpoint. But depending on who wins the game, I think we'll be able to draw back to a couple weeks ago and how that uh, prepared these teams uh, in the non-physical sense for the challenge at hand. There And the gamesmanship, too. You mentioned the mental gymnastics that go forward with uh, out underdogging the other team. Uh, and uh, Joe Mixon, uh, you pointed it off before we hit the record button. Uh, you pointed it out that, uh, uh, you know, bitching about uh, the neutral game site. Uh, why am I? I'm, I'm fumbling here over my words all of a sudden. Uh, maybe I'm maybe I'm having an episode. But um, so let me start over. Uh, you mentioned Joe Mixon. Uh, before we hit the record button. And uh, he is bitching that the NFL put tickets for sale uh, for the AFC championship game in Atlanta, which is only going to be taking place uh, in Atlanta if the Bills and the Chiefs meet. Therefore, big snub towards the Bengals. Uh, what Joe Mixon also needs to realize is the Bengals have been selling tickets for a potential Jaguars matchup in the AFC championship game. Uh, because that's what has to happen. You need to sell the tickets ahead of time. Uh, there will be a refund, uh, all that stuff. So, uh, but it's the things uh, that that players go through. And Joe Mixon very may very well know this, but he is going to uh, raise that flag and see who salutes uh, in terms of uh, of of having a, a chip on the shoulder. And uh, you know, it's it's reminiscent of those. You know the ridiculous Michael Jordan offenses that were taken that we learned in the uh, the documentary about him of you know players who insulted him and then they went and asked the player and they said I never said anything to him he would just invent something to be pissed off about uh, because that's what got him going or it's it's what got the guys in the locker room going is uh, they're counting us out fellas uh, let's go out there and take it to him the Patriots were kings of that and I know I've mentioned that a gazillion times on the podcast and even in columns that I've written is. You know, the, the the years that Bill Belichick would take the, the Lombardi trophy from Robert Kraft, who just received it from Roger Goodell, and it's about to be handed to Tom Brady. But along the way, it's mentioned how everybody counted us out. Uh, even though they were the preseason favorites to win the Super Bowl, they were favored to win every game in the playoffs, including the Super Bowl, uh, but everybody counted them out. So it's uh, – it's – it is fascinating the sports psychology that goes and uh, that goes into uh, making sure that you enter a game feeling slighted and uh, taken advantage of. It's rather unique to sports and maybe even unique to high level professional or very high level sports because in a school or a workplace, you know, they talk about bulletin board material. Usually, a bulletin board is a bunch of positive. Uh, you know, report card on the refrigerator, right. newspaper clips to try to inspire goodwill among your employees or your students or things like that. But in sports, the bulletin board is all the perceived slights and all the negative things in the newspaper or what another right. might have said. And that's what you use for the motivation instead of trying to motivate yourself by the positive 
praise that you might be receiving from your fans. You know, every high school uh, in the spring has a bulletin board somewhere uh, that says where all their seniors are going to, you know, whether they're joining the service or going off to college or getting into the Peace Corps or whatever. And there's just a, a pride mural of, of, of sorts saying where everybody is going. That would be tantamount to having a board in which all the rejection letters are, are put up there of all the all the colleges that were applied to and all the students got turned down. Go out there and get yours. Shove it up their asses, class of 23. But maybe that would work. I mean, I, <laughs> I bet do it that would because it's effective. I mean, I think you get people a little bit angry. There's a brain psychology and a, you know, a nervous system reaction to being a little bit angry and a little bit pissed off and having something to prove that tends to play out on the field and especially high level professional athletes seeking that edge. Uh, you know, the bills are, I think a classic example, but maybe most every good NFL team is like this. They play better when their backs are against the wall or they're fighting from underneath and they, they can tell themselves, everybody counted us out. We had to prove you wrong. And when you are the great team with the home field advantage, that everybody's expecting to win. It seems to work against you a little bit uh, without having that, as you said, trying to out underdog the other team. Are the, I don't really sense, though, that the Bills are doing that too much this week, are they? No, no. I think the fan base the fan base the seems to be doing it, but I don't think the Bills. We haven't seen a lot of that type of talk coming out of one Bills drive uh, over the last couple of weeks. They know they're the better team heading into uh, last week's game against the Miami Dolphins, of course, and they're probably feeling a, a, to an extent that they're whistling past the graveyard after escaping Skylar Thompson and a Dolphins team that managed to score 31 points in bad weather. And here comes Joe Burrow and T. Higgins, Jamar Chase, Tyler Boyd, Hayden Hurst, Joe Mixon to town, granted behind a uh, a, a ramshackle offensive line. And we can get into that. But, yeah, I think that the Bills are they're, they're probably bracing up. I think they know that they dodged it. Uh, getting out of the first round with a performance that wouldn't have flown uh, against any other team in the playoff field. They just happened to do it against the weakest team, at least on the AFC side. Yeah, they've become a little bit of America's darling favorite team with all these prayers on their side. It's very, very hard, I think, for the Bills right now to act like, you know, nobody believes in us and and you're counted, you counted us out and we're proving you wrong. That's not really a mind frame. And I haven't heard the Bills even try to say things like this, but it's very hard for the Bills and even the fans to take that approach coming into these playoff games right now. Any particular matchup uh, that interests you, Jonah? I know that, hell, we just talked about this game three weeks ago. Not too much has changed except for the offensive line. Uh, Let me give a a reset on that just to give uh, an idea of what people – should be looking for in the game Sunday afternoon. Uh, the Bengals, as of four weeks ago, I think it was, had the most consistent offensive line in the NFL. They played every snap together. They started every game. And then their right tackle, L. Collins, was lost uh, with a torn ACL. He's done for the year. Um, and then in last week's game against the Baltimore Ravens, left tackle Jonah Williams – uh, dislocated his kneecap, which actually is an injury you can come back from. And he did earlier in the season, not missing any time, but he has been ruled out uh, for this game. The left guard, Cordell Volson, and the center, Ted Karras, are uh, are consistent. They're going to stay. They're the only starters still left. Uh, and then, uh, oh, I left. I, I skipped over. So Jonah Williams against the Ravens and also Alex Kappa, uh, the right guard, uh, suffered an ankle injury. Uh, in that uh, first round playoff game. So again, only two starters remain left guard, Cordell Volson center, Ted Karras. Um, the, uh, these are names you're probably going to forget uh, or have already forgotten in the 10 seconds uh, since I said them. Uh, but uh, the players who are coming in to fill in have NFL experience. They've started before uh, the right tackle, Hakeem Adeniji, uh, actually started in the Super Bowl last year at guard. He he played throughout the playoffs for them, so he has experience. Jackson Carmen at left tackle has experience. Max uh, Sharping at right guard has experience, but not much this year. So 
getting limited reps. Uh, the, uh, you know, you, they're going to, these guys are going to have to rely probably more on film study than they are the sharpness of the NFL uh, season being 20 weeks into it. Uh, they, uh, hopefully they've been paying attention in practice and doing their work off to the side and in the weight room and conditioning and eating right and doing all that stuff. If you're a Bengals fan, I'm saying that if you're a bills fan, you're like, bring on these scrubs uh, because uh, they were unable to start for somebody else. Go ahead and throw these guys in there and let's see what Ed Oliver and Greg Rousseau and, uh, and Boogie Basham can do against these guys. I mean, yeah, that's the big matchup. The Bills' defensive line and front seven and their ability to create pressure and disrupt Joe Burrow and, and take that tremendous wide receiver trio out of the game because Burrow doesn't have the time and comfort to get Joe Burrow, uh, just to point out, the fastest release in the NFL in terms of time from snap to either getting rid of the ball or getting hit. Uh, so he gets rid of it faster than anybody else. Um, but all it, when you're talking tenths of a second, Max Sharping instead of Alex Kappa and Jackson Carmen instead of Jonah Williams can make a significant difference. And the Bills haven't been getting a lot of sacks lately, but I was reading that they have been generating pressures and hits at, at a bit of a higher rate since Von Miller went out of the lineup. And that could also that could be matchup based in the teams they play and it's a small sample size. But I don't think that's true. Like- well, there there is some truth to that, Jonah. I had just looked up the numbers. Heather Prusak and I are going to talk about that on the Channel 4 uh, Buffalo Kickoff Live uh, preview show uh, Sunday morning. So I happen to have those stats fresh in my head. That's true, but it's coming from the linebackers. It's because since Von Miller's injury, Matt Milano and Tremaine Edmonds are being used as pass rushers, not a lot, but way more than they were before Von Miller was hurt. So instead of... Matt Milano uh, averaging maybe one or two pass rushes every couple games. He's now averaging four a game. And and Tremaine Edmonds is up to maybe two a game or three a game. And that is helping. But from a player-to-player pass rush efficiency rating, they're mostly down. On the defensive line, that is. Okay. Fair, and Daquan Jones and Jordan Phillips are both questionable, which would have a small impact but could have a little bit of an impact on the the rotational depth in the Bills' front seven. And and if you are rushing more linebackers, that can expose you in coverage to a team that has uh, multiple good receivers, which will make it harder to double-team and take one receiver out of the game. There's going to be openings probably in the middle of the field with the second and third wide receivers. So it is that chess match of the defensive play calling and how often you blitz and and send linebackers and things like that. It's going to be the game within the game. I think the weather is something I'm going to watch for to see how much of a factor it is because one, we don't really know how much adverse weather is going to affect the game. There could be some snow. There could be some rain. It could be a little bit. It could be a lot. Traditionally, you would think the bills are in a good position when they play in the snow or in poor weather in home games in the playoffs, but it hasn't necessarily been the case with Josh Allen, at quarterback, and the wide-open spread-out offense. And the Bengals have been a good team at running the ball with Joe Mixon. So you would think – I would think that a snow game or a weather game would favor the Bengals a little bit, but with this banged-up offensive line, uh, maybe they aren't able to run the ball or maybe that's not – it could favor them. Maybe with these backup linemen, a, a more smash-mouth-type game, might help them get into a rhythm and they won't have to worry about blitz pickup and the continuity and things like that. So it'll be interesting to see what the weather is and if that affects the game. And I don't really know if it's going to favor the bills or the Bengals, but uh, you know, it might one way or the other. Yeah. I have uh, the numbers here in front of me uh, regarding uh, pass rushing Um, entering week 12, which is when Von Miller got hurt on Thanksgiving day in Detroit, the team pressure rate, and this comes from Pro Football Focus, was 11.8%. That ranked fifth in the NFL from week 13 on. And the reason I remove week 12 from the scenario is because now the Bills, this involves game plans that factor Von Miller not being on the field, your personnel is different going into the game, et cetera, et cetera. So I eliminated week 12. So entering week 12, 11.8%, fifth in the league. 
from week 13 on, including last week's playoff game, team pressure went down two full points, 9.9%, 20th in the NFL over that span. Now, um, I was incorrect. Uh, Greg Rousseau personally has gone up from 14.5% before the injury to 167 AJ Epinesa is up slightly from 10.5 to 10.7. Everybody else has kind of cratered. Uh, Ed Oliver went from 13% to 6.7%. Um, Daquan Jones went from um, 8.2% to 7.1%. Shaq Lawson uh, went from 10% to 6.7%. Um, Jordan Phillips, uh, I'm sorry, a boogie Basham went from 9.4% to 9.0%. And then Jordan Phillips, who was at 9.2% before uh, Miller's injury just hadn't has, hasn't had enough pass rushes, uh, to really register from week 13 on because he hasn't been on the field. Uh, and then, uh, just real quickly, the numbers, Matt Milano through nine games, he had pass rushed only 19 times. In the last six games, he's pass rushed 31 times. So five times a game as opposed to twice a game. Uh, Edmonds threw eight games 14 times. In the last six games, 25 times. So they're getting after it in different ways because they have to get that much more creative without Von Miller, who, for the record, was their best defensive lineman in terms of pass rush rate at 15.7%. Um, before he, uh, the week before, uh, heading into the game in which he got injured. So um, four, four full points, percentage points uh, over uh, the uh, league average, I believe at that point. Um, so yeah, that's, that's big. And of course, uh, how the bills are going to defend. Uh, you mentioned the weather there, Jonah. I don't know. I mean, the Bengals can practice in this. They they have cold weather too. I don't really see the weather being a factor or hurting the Bengals. Um, but then again, it didn't really hurt the Dolphins. It didn't hurt them uh, in the playoff game, and it didn't hurt them in the the late season uh, game uh, either in terms of putting up points. Um, but yeah, Cincinnati I think the weather been pretty might nasty. Help, might help the Bengals. In what way, way do you think? Bill, well, just in general, I think the Bills have been better offensively in good weather than bad weather over the last couple of seasons. Josh Allen in the passing attack, and the Bengals have been a good running team. And the Bills are running the ball better of late, but not really known as a team that likes to run the ball a lot and likes to base their offense and have a lot of success uh, attacking defenses that way. But with the offensive line injuries, maybe that doesn't suit the Bengals that well right now. I, I That's why I said I don't really know if the weather is going to have a factor and what way it will, but I think it could favor the Bengals and then the strengths of their team, the complete, right. the balance okay. of their team as opposed to the Bills who are a little less balanced offensively. Ryan Miller Knight, you were there. I unfortunately was not. I would love to have gone. Uh, that was uh, the team that I covered so uh, long ago. A lot of guys coming back to the arena who uh, I haven't uh, had contact with in, in many, many years. Um, what was uh, what was it like, I guess, uh, just to be in the arena? It, the ceremony was great from what I saw on television. It looked fantastic. It looked like uh, they hit all the, the right chords and uh, nothing was left out. And uh, just uh, looked all in all to be uh, a terrific night uh, with – the team actually coming through with a, a dramatic overtime victory over the new uh, New York Islanders. Yeah, it was a, a bit of an electric atmosphere. The Sabres did a good job over the last couple of weeks of reminding people to get there early and when the ceremony was going to start and, you know, trying to have everybody in their seats in a full building. How was that? Because I did see people looking uh, rather nervous on Twitter that there weren't enough people in their seats as seven o'clock or as uh, six o'clock was approaching. Right. And and I heard I saw some chatter on Twitter about parking and traffic and people were trying to get there early and maybe had a little bit of an inability getting in the door quite on time. And the ceremony started on time. But it did seem to me, you know, I took a picture at about six oh five and the building looked pretty full. Now at five fifty, when they asked everybody to be in their seats. Uh, it wasn't very full. Now, a lot of people might have been in the concourse kind of waiting for the lights to go out and to take their seats. 
but it did seem like the building filled up very quickly in that 10, 15 minute span. And by the time you really got into the meat of the ceremony, it seemed like everybody was there. Maybe the little bit of intro on the video scoreboard, some people were arriving late for that. But by the time, uh, you know, Rick Jenneret introduced Ryan Miller and Ryan Miller made his speech and the banner went up and everything like that. It did seem like everybody was there and it was a full building and it was a full building an hour before the game. And then it was an overtime game and it didn't seem like anybody left. So it was and it didn't seem like the energy in the crowd waned at all. The Sabres came back to win the game, but had a huge advantage in shot attempts and shots on goal and and were dominating the flow of the game throughout. And the crowd was into it, and it probably maybe it helped a little bit that the Sabers were behind, and the fans felt like they had to cheer the team on. But there was the energy stayed consistent and strong from six o'clock through when the game ended, you know, sometime around ten o'clock, and it was a, you know, an electric atmosphere throughout from start to finish. Um, a a very smart hockey friend of ours. Uh, reached out to me last night uh, during the ceremony and said, was Ryan Miller really this good? Uh, and it was a pointed rhetorical question uh, because obviously his numbers being uh, raised to the rafters, but I think in listening to Rick Jenneret's speech and some of the commentary, uh, it was like, yeah, he was, he was good, but it, it the, our friends, take was that they're trying to make him seem as though he's Hashik's peer. Uh, uh, did you get a sense or in listening to some of the testimonial and the commentary last night that, you know, that maybe they were, they were trying a little too hard to, to, to um, balance that scale. I mean, I don't know if anybody with a straight face can say Ryan Miller is as good as Dominic Hashik. I don't even Ryan Miller probably doesn't think that. And Dominic Hashik might be polite and say something like that, but he doesn't think that either. It was nice that Dominic Hashik recorded a video and uh, gave some praise for Ryan Miller. Because I don't know, did you hear that, you know, 10, 15 years ago? Was was Dominic Hashik the type of guy that said nice things about Ryan Miller? Dominic Hashik wasn't saying nice things about Buffalo 15 sure, years right, ago. Exactly. If you recall, the first time he retired uh, from the Detroit Red Wings, he said, I retire a Detroit Red Wing and I will always be a Detroit Red Wing. And the reason I know this is because, as I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, I was working on a story for our NHL 99 series uh, at The Athletic in which we're counting down the, well, it's the 100 greatest players, uh, but we call it 99. It's a Gretzky thing. Uh, but anyway, um, in Hashik, I'm writing the Hashik story, and I came across a story by a young sports writer by the name of Tim Graham, uh, who was writing about Hashik's retirement and the lead was he didn't mention the Sabres until somebody asked him about it in the Q&A portion of his news conference and he kind of dismissed that question uh, so yes I think that the embrace has happened since retirement uh, the the ice has thawed uh, the Regus is of course no longer being in ownership uh, Darcy Regeer no longer being the general manager um, there's all kinds of things water under the bridge uh, type stuff. Uh, but yeah, there was a, a time in which Dominic Hashik would not have allowed any kind of graciousness towards anyone with the Sabres um, and would not have given a nod to anyone, even his good friend, Marty Baran, I don't think. Right. And, and it was nice to see him come around and participate in that. And I think that was maybe the most memorable, not the most memorable aspect of the night, but in terms of the testimonies and the tributes from other players probably the most striking and memorable player that participated and had something nice to say and, and said welcome to the club and, and he kind of acknowledged Ryan Miller if not his equal you know the next best thing and you know the two great goalies in the modern history of the franchise Dominic Hasek though isn't like Bruce Smith you know, you do it. You interview Bruce Smith about pass rushers. He'll always bring it back to why he was better than whoever you're talking about. Hey, man, we played a three-four defense, and I never had anybody on the other side who got sacks, and I was always getting double teamed, and I was going up against this and that. And so you do that with Bruce Smith. Ashik's not like that. Like he doesn't. I think he was giving. He would. I think he gave begrudging praise 
when he was playing because that was his edge, much like you hear about Bob Gibson. You know, Bob Gibson had no friends uh, in Major League Baseball until he retired. And then he was best. And then people were like, who's this guy? And it was because he was like, hey, I, you were the enemy. And I needed to do that to, to, get, my, uh, to get myself ready to go every four nights. Um, and I think Hashik has some of that in him, too, that once he retired, you know, Hashik's heroes. I mean, he's still a big part of the community. He comes back a lot. Uh, he's donated millions and millions of dollars to Western New York. So there is that. But again, I know that I'm dithering or, or quibbling here, but it was while he played that I think he he would not have given the Sabres uh, any kind of credit uh, until. But when he retired, I think he that all fell away. And, and to get back to your question, I mean, you covered him in this era and I didn't. So. I mean, I think you could answer better, you know, how great was Ryan Miller compared to the goaltending peers of his time and uh, Dominic Kashik and others like that. But he was a very good goaltender. I don't think anybody would dispute that. He was. He won the Vezina. Won the Vezina and was an all-star four or five times, I believe. And was. The goalie of the U.S. Olympic team, which is super symbolic. And I think the all-time winningest American-born goaltender in NHL right. history, and, and he is the Sabres' all-time winning as goaltender. If he's not the best goaltender, he has uh, at least that feather in his cap is the one that had the most victories and the most success. He was here. He played 11 seasons in Buffalo, and he was good in almost every one of those seasons, and the Sabres were a good team in many, many of those seasons, if not quite all of those seasons. And he was popular, and he was the face of the franchise at various points in his career during a, an era when the Sabres were good and exciting. He was the starting goaltender on a team that, you know, went to the Eastern Conference Finals and had those moments that they did have. And if you're nostalgic for that black and red goat head era, uh, you know, Ryan Miller was one of the key figures in that era. So if you're going to put anybody's banner up to represent that period in Sabres history, he's probably the obvious choice. And I think he's the only choice. Right. And then and I know that he's other... probably not the best. He's not the best player from those teams uh, from those. I'm talking about those back to back Eastern Conference champion uh, championship teams. I should say Eastern Conference series final series. I, I got to be careful when I say chant because that makes it seem like they went to the Stanley Cup. They didn't. Uh, Hashik uh, got to the Stanley Cup. Those teams only got to the Eastern Conference finals in back to back years. And Lindy Ruff says, and I agree with him, that the 06 team is probably the best chance that the Sabres have ever had to win a Stanley Cup in the franchise history. Even though they did get to game six of the 99 Cup finals, that 06 team was so good before injuries hit them um, that Lindy Ruff, who coached both teams, bemoans that as the one that got away. Um, But I do think, and we were talking about this before we hit the record button too, if there's who else deserves to be up in the rafters. And I don't think anybody from those teams, even Briere and Drury, as much as they meant, they weren't here long enough. Um, Their departures were messy, not necessarily their fault. In fact, mostly not their fault, but um, they were not liked when they left. Um, Not that that should matter uh, per se. I mean, Hashik was hated when he left. Hashik was hated when he was here. Uh, and he clearly deserves to have his number up there, and it is. But um, who else from those teams? I mean, I mean Vanek, Briere, I Drury are the are the names you go with. Vanek, you mentioned. Uh, you know, Vera Vanek Fox played for forty three teams uh, in the NHL alone. Uh, he he just doesn't. Uh, what team? What is he known for? Is he is he a saber? Um, he Vanek is somebody to me who belongs to the entire league more than he does the Sabres. Danny Briere, I remember as a flyer and I, you probably uh, remember Drury more as a, as a, with the avalanche, uh, where he won a cup and rookie of the year and all that stuff. Um, I don't know as fun as those teams were, I think Ryan Miller's it. Yeah. And, and some of those guys that came back and spoke last night, like Vanek and Derek Roy, they now, of course, it's Ryan Miller's night, and everybody's going to say the nicest things about Ryan Miller. But the sense from them was that they, that Ryan Miller was the backbone and the core of those teams. That they felt like they were a competitive team and had a chance to win because he was in the goal. And and 
and as you covered these teams, he was in the net most every night. He wasn't a goalie that took a lot of games off, and maybe that was Lindy Ruff's decision. There were injuries here and there, lengthy ones. Uh, there was the stretch in which Marty Baran set a record for consecutive wins, I think, or consecutive games without a loss. I'm not, I don't, I don't, not quite remembering it, but you know, they. He, so yeah, he was out for t- extended periods of time, uh, but no, it was not like Hashik with the Red Wings where he was missing months or you do you couldn't count on him. You knew that as soon as he was ready, he was going to come back. I will say this: I want to point out because I was watching the broadcast during one of the breaks. I don't recall if it was an intermission or if it was the time in between the ceremony and the game starting. Um, there was a discussion with you know about the the year that was spent in Rochester during the 04, 05 lockout. And those guys were galvanized Vanek, Pominville, Miller, uh, you know, you name it, you know, that crew that came up uh, together Stafford, I think uh, did I say Roy, um, but there was a group and, and Rob Ray says, you know, and it was amazing. And when that lockout ended, you could pretty much just bring that entire team up and drop them right in there. And, uh, uh, and they were just ready to go. And he said, there were some other pieces too, but I was like other pieces, you know, only the two captains and, you know, <laughs> the back it's like other pieces, you know, the head coach, you know, it's like, let's not, let's not overwrite the history here. I think that's maybe what had me wondering about the, the hagiography of, of Ryan Miller last night. I think it's all deserved, but there, there were a couple of things where I was like. <laughs> yeah, and well, that's what we do as journalists, but I think that's what makes it fun for the fans to kind of buy into these fairy tales and narratives as the years go by is that that's, you know, was this magical time and Ryan Miller was the best goalie in the NHL and the best goalie that Buffalo could ever ask for. And it was, you know, a, bygone glory day era and hopefully the Sabres can get back to that and people probably don't remember some of the you know the Mr. Softy goals or the the disappointing Sabres games and seasons and aspects of that era they remember the good times more than the bad times and as journalists and covering the team we're supposed to you know kind of give the holistic approach but for the fans I think it's okay to have fuzzy memories and only uh, remember the good feelings uh, when it this amount of time has passed and I think you got that a little bit from Ryan Miller. Now he was playing in other teams in other parts of the country, but he's talked about how he didn't come back to Buffalo for many years. Now he's been back for the greater Buffalo sports hall of fame induction. And prior to that, when they introduced the class and here for this banner raising ceremony, and he's talked about reconnecting with the franchise and trying to come back more often. And you see that with a lot of Sabres players, especially hockey players in this area and, and how close it is to Canada, but they seem to, um, a lot of Sabres, they seem to like being part of the organization in retirement almost more than they like being part of the organization as players. And you're <laughs> seeing that continue again with Ryan Miller. Well, again, that goes into the revisionist history, um, especially during uh, shortly after Terry Pagula bought the Sabres and they started to lose. Everybody started to remember Tom Golisano as the most awesome owner. People hated Tom Golisano at the end. People couldn't were ecstatic when Terry Pagula bought the team and got rid of uh, Larry Quinn and Dan DePofi. And now everybody looks back on those wistful Golisano years. Um, but it's funny. It's funny how that played out because there was so much criticism of Golisano and Darcy Regeer and not spending money and not being aggressive enough. And Terry Pagula comes in and over the years, they've spent a lot of money and they've been aggressive and they've tried to build up this roster and, do different things to build a championship team. And they've had a lot less success than the prudent, financially prudent Darcy Regeer strategy had in a previous era. Joan, I can't, uh, I think maybe we wrap it here. Uh, Well, one point uh, I wanted to make one last point in the game that I thought was, Oh yeah. We didn't talk about the game. Right. Because as soon as that happened with Ryan Miller, it was an NHL game to play. And we are in the 2022, 23 season. But the Sabres continued a trend that goes back to last season. It's continued into this season of uh, sensing the moment and rising to the occasion. Yeah, you wrote the, about like, this at WIVB.com. I, I recommend everybody go take a look at it. Sure. And it was, I mean, you, you talk about the the only sellout they had last year, Rick Jenneret, when he had his banner raised, Sabres win that game. 
the RJ's last call in the season finale, they come back and they win that game in overtime. Jack Eichel's return last year uh, was a big moment for the fan base. They win that game. They didn't do it this year, but that seemed more of a Jack Eichel moment when, when Vegas came there this time. The two season openers, the Heritage Classic game, the first, the first game, but really the first five games that they wore these black and red Goathead jerseys. The Sabres won all of those games, scored six goals in each of those wins. Uh, the first game after the blizzard, the first game after DeMar Hamlin's collapse. When they've had big crowds with energy in the building, it seemed to bring out the best in this team. And I think that's a good sign that as this team matures, that they can kick it into another gear, sense the moment. And when it comes down to playoff games or must-win regular season games, uh, maybe not later this season, but later on in the development of this team, I think that's a something to watch and something for Sabres fans to be hopeful and confident about that this team might not win every night, but they seem to have something inside of them that they're going to win the important games and they're going to, and also to do it for the fans because some of these games have are meaningless in the standings and don't really matter if the Sabres win or lose for the competitive aspect of it, but it means a lot to the people that pay their money and are sitting there and want to have a good feeling like that Ryan Miller ceremony is going to be memorable no matter whether the Sabres win that game or not, but it's a lot more memorable when they come back and win the game in overtime and Ryan Miller gets to go celebrate on the ice with them and had the Sabres played a dull, a dud game and lost four to nothing. Um, it would have taken a little bit of the steam and the good feeling out of that Ryan Miller event. It would have been kind of a shame if there was a sold out building at six o'clock and by the third period, half the crowd had gone home and it was a dull building. Did you have a chance to talk with uh, Uka Pekka Lukanen after the game? Or I did there... not. I went down to the locker room and I got Dylan Cousins and Rasmus Dahlin and I went back up. All right. So I missed it if he was asked this regarding the pressure of, because he let in an early goal, uh, the pressure of on Ryan Miller night being the next young goaltender and watching all these highlights and seeing Dominic Hasek and Daniel Briere and Mike Greer and uh, all these people who are in the league still in either legendary capacities or even managerial capacities, Lindy Ruff and all these teammates and thinking, you know, everybody loves this guy. And there goes that Jersey up into the rafter up with that other goaltender who used to be here. Now I'm the goaltender and Oh shit. <laughs> I don't know if that's a, if, if there's a, a weak in the knees moment there where he, uh, he maybe had to get his, uh, uh, get his footing a little bit. Uh, before uh, he was able to to fully uh, get going. Yeah, I didn't talk to him and I didn't hear what he said, but he did make some big saves in the third period, including one with about seven seconds left. He played well. He played well enough for them to win the game, and they've won more often than not when he's been in the net. And then the talk from the players that did, you know, Darlene called him a monster and said he's been playing very well for them of late. And Don Granato talked about his competitive spirit and letting in that early goal and, responding to that and playing better as the game wore on. Now, as the game was going on, it started, it, it seemed like the story of the game might be the Islanders goalie, Ilya Sorokin, wearing number 30. He finishes with 42 saves, and he almost seemed like he was going to steal the game, and that was going to be the tribute to Ryan Miller, that, you know, he wasn't a saber, but there was a Ryan Miller-like performance on the ice that night. It just happened to be for the other team. Good stuff, Jonah. Well, let's uh, let's save Big Four basketball for when there's maybe more meaty content, because really not much to talk about uh, about Canisius, Niagara, yeah, we can catch UB, up with them. or Saint Bonaventure's playing well. Saint Bonaventure and UB are both winning their home games and in the mix uh, in the conference. Probably not going to win the conference, but going to be top half of their leagues if if things keep going the way it is. But we can catch up on them another time. I can mention one thing, plug in a little bit of a story I wrote and a thing people might want to pay attention to on Saturday night before the Bills play. You got the Giants playing the Eagles in the NFC playoffs. Some Western New York connections there with Brian Dable being the coach of the Giants. The Eagles coached by Nick Sirianni from Jamestown. Right. Dave Caldwell's in the um, Eagles front office. Uh, one of those St. Francis guys in the NFL. And then Brett Kern, punter for the Eagles. You know, oh, that's so right. There's Yet some, another Western New York connection. There's some Western New York rooting interest. Now it's competing Western New York rooting interest. Like maybe you're a, a Hamburg, West Seneca, St. Francis guy, and you're back in Brian Dable. Or I think there's a lot of Bills fans and Buffalo people. You can that get into neighborhood rivalries here, not just 
locals. There's neighborhoods involved. Right, sure. And then there's Jamestown, southwestern area with the Syrianis. But I think it's cool seeing locals kind of rise to that status. I mean, I tried to figure this out and ask some people, and I couldn't get it ultimately verified, but I believe Nick Sirianni was the first Western New Yorker to be an NFL head coach. Now we have Brian Dable being the second, and to have them both having this kind of success and coaching against each other in the playoffs is kind of a nice moment for the area. And if the Bills don't go to the Super Bowl, maybe there'll be uh, you know a Buffalo rooting interest in that game coming out of the NFC. Right on. Well, thanks, Jonah. Uh, have a great weekend. And everybody listening or watching out there, you have a great weekend too, uh, watching uh, the the Sabres and Ducks as a continued Ryan Miller weekend, really, isn't it? Isn't he involved in some other stuff going around? I think he's going to be up in the booth maybe and uh, well, talking about his two former teams. Right. Yeah, I didn't actually recognize that. But, yeah, he does have a – how would you call this? A beer in his likeness being released by resurgence and there's a party for that after the game tomorrow so i think that and then that's probably part of uh whatever promotion he'll be doing at the game so yeah it's it's ryan miller weekend it is kind of interesting maybe they should have done the banner uh, the game against the anaheim ducks but it seemed like maybe they, they the right think that the right it's easier to sell tickets on saturday than on a thursday rj Knight was on a thursday too if i recall True. Um, yeah, Saturday games tend to draw decent crowds, but tomorrow's youth hockey day. I don't know if that is a factor for or against doing something like that. But they, they look, they sold out the building, and it was, I think, every bit of the event that uh, the Sabres and Ryan Miller and the fans wanted it to be. So I, I really can't complain that they should have done it on a different day. All right, Jonah. See you at the bar somewhere this weekend, I'm sure. All right. Thanks to everyone out there for listening slash watching Tim Graham and friends brought to you by CTBK CPAs and business consultants. CTBK is more than just a full service accounting firm. They are one team with an innovative approach that takes on each new challenge with collaborative problem solving skills to provide creative solutions for their clients. Based right here in Western New York, CTBK is a champion for your business in our community. Additionally, CTBK goes beyond tax and attest services by offering a wide array of consulting and outsourced solutions tailored to meet the unique needs of your business, allowing you to focus on your operational and long-term strategic goals. Whether you're a large corporation, a small business, or somewhere in between, the team at CTBK is determined to help you succeed. Visit ctbk.com or call 716-630-2400, 716-630-2400 to learn how CTBK's one-team approach can work for you.